Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. In 2013, the Walt Disney Company released what would become the studio's highest-grossing animated film of all time. Now, that's saying a lot. The Walt Disney Company has released more than 120 feature-length animated films since 1937. And to end up on top, well, that's quite the feat. And interesting enough, this film was the first one to enter Walt Disney's imagination. He was working on it when he changed his mind at the last minute and instead produced Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. It was going to be called, in 1937, The Snow Queen, based on a book by Hans Christian Andersen. Fast forward 75 years, and what you have instead, Disney's highest grossing animated film of all time, is Frozen. It was not only a theatrical success, it has become a cultural phenomenon. Almost any child born in the 21st century knows the story of this film and can sing all of the songs. Ad nauseum. (laughs) For the uninitiated, it is the tale of two sisters, Elsa the young queen with mysterious, uncontrollable powers of ice and cold, and Anna, younger, precocious, of the purest heart. Because of her powers and the danger that they pose, Elsa is held in isolation for most of her young life, a safety precaution, until she can bear it no longer. By self-imposed exile, she retreats into the mountains, creating the dramatic plot whereby her loving sister must seek her out, bring her home, and correct the injustices and eternal winter her absence has wrought. This is unique in Disney lore. There is no clear-cut villain, no wicked witch, no major antagonist, no good versus evil. It's a story of reconciliation, of family. It's a story of sacrifice and acceptance. This is profoundly the case with the movie's main theme song, Let It Go. Let it go, let it go, can't hold it back anymore, let it go, let it go. Ripping through the Dolby surround sound of theaters, blasting off of Blu-ray DVDs, car radios, Demi Lovato provided the locals for the popular release. It hit the top five in the Billboard Hot 100. It won the Academy Award for the best original song and has been released in some 50 languages. Usually there is a movie concept and then songs are written to support that movie's theme. Robert Lopez, Christian Anderson Lopez, a husband and wife musical duo, were tasked with that exact mission. 
27 songs later, all strikeouts. And then they pulled from their magical musical hat, Let It Go. And it proved so powerful that Disney rewrote the entire movie to accommodate the song. It's one of those earworm songs. And many of you will be singing it for the rest of the day. You can't get it out of your head. And even if you are not really into Disney princesses, you have to recognize the song's power, or I should say the song's empowerment. It has a universal message, maybe the universal message. Jesus put it differently, but he said, if anyone will save his or her life, he or she must lose that life. Let it go. Meister Eckhart said, the only spiritual discipline is emptiness. Let it go. Rumi, the Sufi mystic, said, you have been stony for too many years. Try something different. Surrender. Let it go. Julian of Norwich, when we enter a state of surrender, the goodness of God awakens within us. Let it go. Bill Wilson, founder of AA, only a power greater than ourselves can restore our sanity. So we turn our will and lives over to the care of the God of our understanding. Let it go. And then there is Viktor Frankl, who we have been spending these days with. If possible, we change our fate. If necessary, we willingly accept it. What can be overcome must be overcome. What cannot be overcome must be accepted. When we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. And that sounds very much like words written about the same time, not from a Jewish Holocaust survivor, but a Christian theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr. You have heard his words many times, I suspect. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Viktor Frankl said that three things help you find meaning in your life in spite of everything. The work that you do, the experiences that you have, including and especially love, which we talked about last week. And the third thing, your attitude. Remember what he said, everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. And the attitude we take is twofold. We change the things that can be changed, and we accept the things that we cannot change. Today, it is the latter, the attitude of acceptance, surrender. From Jesus to Bill Wilson, from the ancient mystics to Walt Disney in the 21st century, the answer is still the same. You have to let it go. There comes a time when no more action can be taken. No more prayers can be offered. No more hills are left to capture. No more points can be made. No more positions are to be defended, and there's no more control to be had. Then there is only surrender.
If you don't surrender, you will discover that what you are fighting against and resisting will only become stronger. You know what I'm talking about. Because you all have that thing. Or should I say things with lots of S's. That person, that situation, that addiction, that sleep-stealing, mind-exhausting, heartbreaking set of circumstances that you are powerless against. Do you know what that is? You're going to take this home with you today, I hope. That's a jackass problem. Slide, please. You know, in the days of the Wild West, the most important tool in a cowboy's toolbox was the horse. And often they brought their horses from east out west, their trusty steeds. But often they would capture wild mustangs in the desert southwest. The mustangs were left behind by the Spaniards. They turned wild and feral. In fact, if you've ever been to a rodeo or if you enjoy rodeo, rodeo was not invented as an entertainment. It was a Spanish, Mexican, American way of breaking animals so that they would be usable. But not every cowboy and not every rancher was comfortable with abusing their animals to get them to do what they wanted to do. And so what they would do when they were breaking a wild stallion or a mustang is simply halter them to a jackass. Now this works. And these are modern pictures right here and it's still used today. You take this little jackass and you tie him to the horse and you set him free. And what happens is they go rolling and ramping over the desert hills. But they'll be back. And when they come back, an animal that would not allow a human being to touch it can suddenly be haltered, saddled, and ridden. Why? Because it's had enough of that jackass. The horse rolls around on the ground, the donkey stands there. The horse bucks and kicks, the donkey's strong enough to take it. The horse stops, says, I'm not going any further, the donkey says, I can wait that out. This little animal, it's not just that they're stubborn, they're strong, smarter than you think. And for many of us, and I do want you to take that image home with you today, we are all hitched to things that are stronger and meaner than we are. Are you listening? We all have these jackass problems. Some of them are jackass people. And you're not going to beat these problems. You're not going to change these people. You have to accept life for how it is. And the quicker we can accept it, the quicker that we can surrender, the quicker that we can come to peace with it, then the quicker we can get unhinged from it. Think about the poor addict who is imprisoned by his or her addiction to alcohol, to meth, to gambling, or whatever, and the addict says to himself or herself, you know, I'm going to beat this all by myself. I can do this. It's not a real problem. And you know what that is? That's just the ego talking. 
That's just this inner selfishness that says, I'm not ready yet to let my grip go so that whatever has me will let its grip go. Think about the the spouse whose partner left them and filed for divorce. And maybe he got someone else and he moved on. And here she is left behind, unable to accept it. No way. So she goes into chasing mode, chasing him down, trying to woo him back, fighting for that marriage, but it's all one-sided. He's not interested in reconciliation. And the more she tries, the more alienated he becomes. Have you noticed that? And this can go on for years, not just the chasing, because when the chasing stops, the resentment sets in. And you can give your entire life away to someone because you can't control them. The businessman whose finances have collapsed keeps trying to dig out, robbing Peter to pay Paul, go get one more loan over here or try something else over there, and all he is doing is delaying the inevitable collapse and it's time to let it go. It just seems that the harder you hold on, the more pain and conflict you will experience. The longer you fight, the greater the misery, suffered and inflicted. It's not that we don't fight hard enough. Fighting actually becomes the problem. Our resistance isn't too low. Our resistance is too much. And it's not that we haven't struggled long enough. The struggle is preventing us from moving on. We are so individualistic, so shaped by our desire to win, to achieve, so confident in our own power and ability, so driven to succeed, to uphold our image, that it's really hard for us to learn the lesson of letting go. But learn it, we must. The writer of Ecclesiastes, in our text today, thumps on and on about money. But it's not really about money. It's about contentment. It's about acceptance. The wealthy are ripped apart by anxiety, he says. How can I keep what I have gathered to myself? How can I protect my investments? What is going to happen after I die to all that I have worked for? These are questions of control, not money. And thus, they are questions of illusion. You can't keep it all to yourself. Investments always carry risk. You can't take it with you when you go. And no matter who you leave your fortune to, you will not be around to direct, manage, or to oversee it. Sorry, those are the rules. And the poor have the same anxiety. Working people are frustrated. They're discouraged. They're angry. They have nothing to leave behind. I think the term today is economic anxiety. But naked we are born into this world with clenched fists, and naked we leave this world with nothing in our hands. So what is the writer of Ecclesiastes, what is his answer to all of this? It's the same answer he's been given all along, but with an added line, and he adds it twice in verses 18 and 19. I have noticed one thing at least that is good. It is good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them. I'll repeat it. Eat, drink. If you got someone you love, you enjoy your work, you're ahead of the world, okay? And then he adds this line in 18. And to accept their lot in life. Verse 19. It is a good thing. 
to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it, to enjoy your work, and accept your lot in life. This is indeed a gift from God. You accept your lot in life not as triumph, not as defeat, not as an excuse to not work hard or to better yourself, but this is the clear exhortation to stop with the striving, stop with the clinging, stop with the crusading. Be still, live, enjoy the blessings God has given you. Surrender, accept life for how it is. Let it go. I once knew a woman who wanted nothing more than to be in control of her life. And I understand where her compulsion came from. She had had a terribly anxious childhood, chaos, abuse, poverty. She had a couple of health scares as a young adult. It made her paranoid about her body, about her health, and about health care providers. In midlife, her husband traded her in for a younger model, quite literally. She finished raising her kids largely alone. But still, she scraped and fought and cajoled and twisted arms until she had her own little place in the woods. And she had a real opportunity to be happy, to be free, to make some peace. But the longer she lived, the more controlling she became. She despised her son-in-law, a common theme. But not with my mother-in-law. Ruth is watching. Hey, Ruth, good morning again. So she kept trying to put in the deed of her home that he could never buy it or live in it, even after she was dead. If a granddaughter offended her in some way, she would rewrite her will on the spot. As her health began to decline, she put instructions on the door of her home, instructing arriving paramedics on exactly what they should do when they get there. She would go to the ER at the point of death, all contrite and taking all the help that she could get. And as soon as she had enough glucose back in her bloodstream, it was all hand grenades and butcher knives again. She could never accept the fact that her parents were faulty, that they had failed her. She resented to her last breath that her husband had left her. She never forgave God or the universe for taking two of her children in their youth. She never let go of a single offense, a single snub, or a crossword. Outside, she was an ice castle, as if constructed by Elsa herself. And inside, she was a terrified, vulnerable child. And ultimately, because of her decisions and actions, she lost all control and consent over how her life ended. She died alone in a city that was not her home, in a facility as cold and sterile as an icebox, all her instructions cast aside, kicking against all that was stronger than her to the very end. And in the end, that will that had been worked and reworked and written and rewritten could do nothing to stop those who survived her from doing exactly as they chose to do. 
Now, a question for you. Do you want to spend what few days you have, what little energy you have, fighting against things that cannot be defeated, trying to change things that you have no power over, or preventing outcomes that are beyond your reach? Do you? I know the answer. No. So second question, then why are you doing that? Because some of you, some of us are. And I know the excuses. I just can't accept it the way it is. I can't just let this happen. I can't live with this. Yes, you can. You must. You have no other choice. I know you're strong, but some battles are unwinnable. And some wars are unsustainable. You can prevail for a long, long time. But eventually, even the strongest warrior has to lay down the sword and say, I can't do this. And surrender brings a miracle. Peace. Rest. Life. When nothing else can be done... When there is nothing left to prove, to protect, to pursue, one's energies can then be invested in living rather than in resisting. In surrender, we let the pain do its transformative work. In surrender, we discover a serenity that cannot be threatened. In surrender, we understand that being undone and done in and knocked down and used up are the very means by which we arrive at patience and liberation. In surrender, we recognize that our stony hearts must be ground so that wildflowers will bloom in the soil that remains. In surrender, we find that even suffering has meaning if it moves us toward our own conversion and salvation. One more story from Viktor Frankl's writings. While in the concentration camp, he was sometimes called upon to actually work as a doctor as he was trained, not as a slave laborer. He was attending a young woman who knew she would die in the next few days, and yet she was cheerful in spite of it all. She said to Frankel, I am grateful that fate has hit me so hard because in my former life I was spoiled. I didn't take spirituality seriously. And then she looked out the window of the little hut in which she lay and said, that tree there is the only friend I have. And through the window she could see just one branch of a chestnut tree with two little blossoms on it. And Frankel thought maybe that she was hallucinating and he asked her if the tree ever talked back. And she said, yes. And he asked, well, what does the tree say to you? And she answered, it says to me, I am here. I am here. And I am life. I am eternal life. And Frankel made this conclusion, quoting Dostoevsky. There is only one thing that I dread. Not being worthy of my suffering. The way some accepted what was inescapable was a genuine inner achievement. It was a spiritual victory that could not be taken away from them. 
a way of living that makes life meaningful, purposeful. What does it matter if it is conscience or God or to a person far away? Each one of us must know that somehow, somewhere, someone is there, unseen, watching over us, demanding that we be worthy of our suffering. And yes, if possible, we will change our fate. But if necessary, we willingly accept it. This is the full serenity prayer written by Reinhold Niebuhr. We usually only get to the first paragraph. Let us pray this together. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking as Christ did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that He will make things right if I surrender to His will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with Him forever and ever in the next.